Well, good morning, Real Life Church. Okay, you're not awake. Good morning, Real Life Church. There you go. I think we're ready to get after it now. So, uh, hey, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, if you're new for the first time, thank you guys for being here. We're so, so grateful that you, that God led you to kind of walk through these doors. Um, I've only had a few Red Bulls, so you should be in for a treat. Okay, all right. Um, guys, thank you so much for these past couple weeks. This has been an enjoyable series for me in so many different ways, and I hope it has been for you. We've been in a series, if you are new, called Truth Be Told. And, uh, and the reason why we really felt led by the Lord to start this series, as we shared last week, is, is we really believe um, that God wants us to better understand what we believe. See, an unexamined faith, as I mentioned last week, leads to blind faith, an unverified faith, and that's not the kind of faith that God wants you to have. He wants you to understand what you believe, why you believe, so that no matter what environment you go into, no matter what obstacle you face, you can understand and stand on the, the, the verified evidence and truth that God is who he said he is, and God did what he said that he would do. And this is exactly why we're walking through this series. And so I've been encouraged by it. Hopefully you have in so many ways. And so this morning, we're going to dive into kind of another area. Last week, we talked about the problem of evil. And we kind of understood how evil isn't a creation. It's actually what happens when God is, God's presence is removed from that particular area and how God is calling us to invite him back into our lives and into the environments that he calls us into so that good can once again rule and reign in our life. Today, we're going to talk about the word of God. We're going to talk about the Bible and we're going to specifically talk about why the Bible is reliable. Now, for all you college students and, and, uh, and those that kind of maybe interact with um, uh, some people that love engaging in these kinds of conversations, this is not, this is not evidence that's just going to kind of go, hey, put that in your pipe and smoke it, you know, stick it to you kind of thing. That's not what this is. That what this is is an opportunity to understand that what you and I believe is actually valid, not just religiously, not just feeling-wise, not just based because on what God said, but you can understand that what you believe is true according to the entire world. You can actually go into environments and feel confident that what you believe and what Jesus taught and what is talked about in this book is real, is true, and it's meaningful for both your life and for mine. But how often, how often we get into these situations where our faith gets challenged and we feel uneasy. And we feel like, oh man, I'm, I'm kind of standing on some shaky, shaky ground. Can I say this? That there is no better way to dismantle what people think, believe, and how they act than to grab hold of their narrative to grab hold of their language. See, Peter Kreft, he's an author, he's a scientist, and he's written several different books. He made this statement, and it's not up here, but, but I wanted to start out by reading it to you. He said this about language and our culture. He said this, he said, if you control language, you control thought. And if you control thought, you can control action. And if you can control action, you can control the world. And if you look at our world right now, you know what tends to happen a lot? They change the language. They alter, oh, don't say that anymore. Don't read that anymore. Don't, don't go there anymore. And so you have these revisionist history people and changing the language of what did happen or how it should have happened and rather than what did happen. And so the, as the language changes, it begins to change the way we think and ultimately begins to change the way that we act. And the way that we act then becomes dominated by the world's agenda rather than God's. See, it's important to understand what you believe, why you believe, and, and where is our narrative? Our narrative as followers of Christ, we believe is given to us by the word of God. We believe that that is where our source of truth is. 
So make no mistake, it's not an accident when you look back in the 20th century why countless times the enemy was trying to destroy the narrative. Destroy the body. You look at, you look at the, the Nazis and, and Hitler. Book burnings were common. You know why? Because they wanted to destroy the language. They wanted to destroy this narrative so that they could make the narrative. They could tell you how the story should be, would be, could be. So that they, in turn, can plant the thoughts in your mind so that they can then control your actions so you'd submit to their way of life as opposed to, once again, what is true. What is true? See, knowing what you believe and knowing the true story and knowing the true narrative is essential. It holds you fast. It keeps you grounded no matter the lies that come your way. You can stand no matter what the obstacles are thrown at you. In 1989, some of you weren't even born maybe. I don't know. All right. <laughs> but in 1989, there was, a, uh, there was a TV show host by the name of uh, Larry King. Larry King Live. And he would have different guests on, on his uh, televised uh, syndicated, syndicated show. And, and this one particular time, he had actress and new age follower, follower Shirley MacLaine come on that show. And a lot of the time, uh, Larry King would have these different callers call in. And, uh, and so Larry, Larry King had this one caller call in, and, and he was a Christian. And this Christian got into kind of, a, kind of a, uh, an argument with Shirley about her view of the Bible and the New Testament. And this was Shirley's quick response. She said this. She said, the Bible has changed and, tra and, and translated so many times over the last 2,000 years that it's impossible, impossible to have any confidence in its accuracy. That's what she said. And then Larry King was quick to endorse her facts by saying, well, everybody knows that. Good one, Larry. Good job. But you hear language like this. You hear flippant comments like this, maybe by professors, maybe my friends, maybe my family members. And, and you know what they don't have in support of their language? Evidence. They don't, they're, they're sharing what they think, what they feel. They have a strong opinion. But make no mistake, you can have 10 opinions and still not have evidence to support what you're saying. It's not, hey, let's get enough voices to say the same thing and then it'll be true. No, it's true whether you say something or not. It's true and truth will always stand the test of time. And truth will always remain the same. Truth doesn't change, otherwise it's not true. Truth is truth. But I think that we've gotten into a lot of environments and we've gotten into a lot of arguments. We've gotten into a lot of conversations. And you know what? You hear comments like Larry King or Shirley MacLaine and you're like, is what I believe? Is it, is it true? I mean, come on. Is, is the Bible really something I can go to? Is the, is the Bible, oh gosh, you know, don't look too hard. I mean, if you look too hard, then you might see all the flaws and you might see all the discrepancies and all the problems with it. Don't look too hard. Is that what our faith is? Is that what it's ultimately become? I remember I got into an, uh, a conversation. This was early on in my college career. And, and, and I had some tools and I had some knowledge uh, going into this conversation, but I was not ready for the kind of engagement I had with this one gentleman who, I mean, just peppered me with tons of unanswerable questions that I just couldn't answer. I just couldn't answer them. And I remember walking away from that conversation going, man, I'm, I'm just, is, am I standing on shaky ground? Like, I, I really walked away from that feeling super insecure. And maybe some of you this morning are like, uh, and a lot of the time, I think that's the reason why we become these undercover Christians, because it doesn't match the language of the world. We think that somehow, some way, this book is, uh, is just religious in nature, and, and don't, look too, don't look too hard at it. Let's just put our head in the sand and hope people don't, 
don't begin to open it up and dive into it too much because, because then our faith will be completely dismantled. Is that where we are? I would, I would suggest this morning as we walk through and we begin to look at this text and we begin to understand it and look at it as a historical document, you and I will walk away with a much different impression than what the world is saying about it. The apostles and the prophets, did they walk around kind of going, uh, here's my scroll about Jesus, I'm just going to hide it. You know what I'm saying? Like, were they, were they nervous? Did they, did they even think that this, that this book, this text, these scrolls that they're walking around with, did they, did they walk around kind of doubting it? How did they view this book? How did they view scripture during this time? I'm so glad you asked. In, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we get in, kind of informed by Paul exactly how this book, how this word is viewed. It says this, and we also thank God constantly for this. You want me to know what I'm thanking God about? This, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men. This is not, they, they recognized that when they opened up these pages, this was not just some autobiography or some biography or, or some uh, history book just giving information about certain events that took place. No, no, they understood that this was not a document by man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So what the apostles, what the prophets, what the church fathers, they thought and believed about this book was not one of shame, not one of fear. They believed that when they opened up this book, that there was an actual conversation between them and the God of the universe. They believed that those words were so powerful, so meaningful, that it would actually not just work in them, but work would come from them as followers of Christ. And this morning, I would, I would echo that same sentiment to say, you and I don't have to walk around ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I don't have to walk around ashamed that somehow this book doesn't stand the critics of this world. You and I can actually begin to walk around in a confidence this morning that brings such certainty that you and I, regardless of the environments we're in, regardless of the scholarship that you have toe-to-toe conversations with, you can stand and know that the evidence of this world is actually on our side, not theirs. Not theirs. So there's three questions I want to answer this morning. Three questions. The first is, is the Bible reliable? It's the right first question. The second question that we're going to engage in is, if it's reliable, is it relevant? Is the Bible relevant? Meaning, does it apply to today? The third question that I want to engage with is, is if it's reliable... If it's relevant, then what's my responsibility to it? Like, what do I do with this book? If it's reliable, if it's relevant, what do I do with it? And what does this mean for me? So let's look at this very first question. Is the Bible reliable? But before we do, I just wanted to open up in a word of prayer. So Father, we we come into this moment. And Lord, I can't, but you can. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would just move into this place. That you would take center stage. That the truth that is heard this morning, that the evidence that is presented this morning would not be man-centered, but it would be Christ-centered. That it would come from you. That it would take root in our lives. God, I pray that you would move this pastor, out of your way, and that you would speak clearly exactly what you and I need us to hear to walk away changed and different. God, we just love you. We invite you into this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. In 
2014, there was a Newsweek article. And, uh, and you'll notice that Newsweek, Time Magazine, and a number of those different magazine racks, like when you go to the grocery store during like Easter time and during like Christmas time and those kinds of things, you'll see a lot of religious and spiritual topics on the front of these covers. It's like, it's like the topic to talk about. And in, in 2014, close to Christmas time, there was an article that came out titled, The Bible. It says, the Bible so misunderstood, it's a sin. This is, what, this is the title of the article. And it was written by a man by the name of Kurt uh, Eichenwald. And this is what Kurt said. He said in this article, he said, no television preacher has ever read the Bible. No evangelical politician has ever read the Bible. Nor the Pope and other religious modern-day leaders have ever read the Bible. Thank you. Ever read the Bible. He claims, at best... We have all read really bad translations of the Bible. A translation of a translation of a translation created by a copy of a copy of a copy hundreds of times over. So what determines the reliability of any historical document in history? We're going to look at that. What determines, like, we, we know many of us went to school, if not all of us. Some of us are in school, hopefully. <laughs> and you're learning about history and American history and world history and, and all these things that took place. But what gives us confidence about those events and those lives and those experience, experiences that happen? What proves them to be reliable in our lives. So what are the reliability of any historical document revolves around these two words, textual criticism. See, when you talk to historians and you talk to scientists, they go, if you want to know if a document from the first century is true, regardless of what you believe about it, but is this document, if we, if we take our religious hat off for a moment and just look at the Bible as a religious, or excuse me, as a historical document, that's all I want you to do this morning. Just look at this as a historical document. Does it stand up against the scrutiny of what all other historical documents actually have to be tested by? Like what determines that what we're reading is the original document that was originally pinned in the first century. So textual criticism is applied during that time. And before I get to the factors, I want to read you the definition of what textual criticism is. A textual critic is, um, are academics who reconstruct, they reconstruct a missing original, like the original document. So they take all these different documents and they pull it together and they go, what was the original document that was put together from existing manuscripts that are generations or generations removed from its original creation. The objective of textual criticism is used to determine as exactly as possible from the available evidence the original words of the document in question. Okay, so the textual critic goes... Okay, what, how many documents you got here? Okay. How many documents you got over here? Okay, let's pull those all together. And I'm going to take all these documents and all these manuscripts, and then I'm going to, I'm going to compare them. I'm going to go back and forth through them. And so there's a couple factors when they pull all these documents together. Here are the three factors. The first factor is this. How many copies are there to examine? Makes sense. If there was a document in the first century, you need to find all the manuscripts you possibly can to determine what the original document said. And the more documents you have, the greater the evidence, right? The more documents you have, the greater the evidence. The second factor, how close in time 
are the oldest existing documents or the oldest existing copies of the original. Meaning, if there was a document in the first century written, how close to that original document were the first copies made? How close will determine how accurate the original document is and what it originally said. The third factor. The third factor is this. What are the number of variations between the documents? And variations are errors, if I can say it that way. Variations are differences. So if you take one document and you hold it up against another, what are the differences from this document to this document? What are the grammatical mistakes? What are the, punctu- what are the punctuation mistakes? What are the missing words? All those kinds of things. So this is what the textual critic does. I'm going to take all these manuscripts and all these different documents, and I'm going to put it under a microscope as best as I can to make sure that that original document that's being spoken about today is the original document, and we can believe it as being true. So let's look, for just the sake of doing it this morning, at a couple first century documents so that you understand exactly what I'm talking about. The first, the first is a document by the greatest Jewish historian, Josephus, called the Jewish Wars. The Jewish Wars, and again, these are the best first century documents in history. So what I'm giving you is the best the world has to offer, okay? Jewish Wars by Josephus, written around the first century. There are nine manuscripts, okay? And it was written... 400 years after the original document was penned. So the, all the events and all that document was actually penned, the very first copies, 400 years later. Second, the Annals of Rome. It was written by the greatest Roman historian, Tacitus, in the first and second century. There are two manuscripts. Two, written 800 years after the original. This is not getting any better, okay? Seems to be going, getting worse. But these are, again, these are the best the world has to offer. And do you notice, do you notice something? How many times I've never seen this on the front of the Time magazine? And I've never seen uh, the uh, Jewish wars on the front of a magazine. And uh, our third document is this. Caesar's Gallic Wars. Caesar wrote around the first or second century. Ten manuscripts a thousand years after the original document was penned. This is getting super bad, okay? This is a thousand years. Uh, tell, tell me, how, how good is your memory a thousand years from now? Just saying, okay? This is, this is what we're talking about. They are writing things that happened a thousand years years ago. That is the first documentation from the original document. And now I want to give you the greatest of all the first century documents and the greatest evidence for the first century documents that we have is a book that we know called the Odyssey or the Iliad. Okay? Some of you had to read it in school and you were asking why. Good question, right? I have to read this book. It's a guy by the name of Homer, not Simpson, okay? He wrote it around the 7th, 8th century BC. And there are 647 manuscripts. All right, finally getting into the hundreds. It's exciting. 647 manuscripts were written 1,100 years after the original, okay? So... 400 years, Josephus, 800 years, Tacitus, Caesar, 1,000 years. You guys want to know the Odyssey, right? You got Homer pinning the Odyssey, saying that this is the story. See, the problem with that is like playing the game of telephone. You ever play the game, tel- how many of you played the game telephone? Okay. How good, how often 
does the original sentence that you get whispered in your ear come out right at the end? Not too often. Played it a lot. But that's exactly what sort of happened. So you've got the Odyssey. Homer pins this down. And then he's so excited about it, he shares it with a neighbor. And the neighbor's like, that's great. I'm going to tell my children. So then he tells his children. And, and this, you know, he said this, and then, and then this is the place that happened, and so on. And then their children played, shared with his grandchildren, and then great-grandchildren, and then generations after generations after generations. And then finally, there was a generation that said, you know what? Let's put this down on paper. Let's put this down on paper. That sounds great. So then they put the Odyssey down on paper as they know it 1,100 years from when that document was first written. So here's the problem. There's a lot of problems, but there, here's the problem. There's 647 copies written 1,100 years later. And in the 647 manuscripts that we have, there is 1.2 million variations meaning errors. So if I hold up one manuscript to another, you will see multiple errors. And the errors are so significant. You're talking different times, different places. You're talking different characters. You're talking different events. You are talking a different story. So the truth is, if we're honest, the story that we know as the Iliad that we just take as fact, that this was the one that was written by Homer, we don't even know if this was the actual story pinned by Homer because the first copies we have were written down 1,100 years after the original documentation. So let's talk about the Bible. You ready for the Bible? Come on. Let's talk about the Bible. How does the Bible... Now, now before I dive into that, let me say this. All of the first century documents were handed down in a linear fashion, meaning a line... So one copy was then given to another person, and then they made a copy of that copy. And then the next generation made a copy of that copy of them, that copy, and so on and so forth. And so copies were handed, uh, handed down, and then so copies of copies and transmissions of transmissions, so on and so forth, all the way down to what we have here today. The linear method happened in all of these areas of documentation. So what's the evidence for the Bible? The very first and you should know this, it's geometric. There's the linear method, but then there's the geometric method. Here's what that means. It means that the manuscripts were not copies of copies, but direct copies from the originals. So the word of God originally penned, the document that they had, they made 200, 250 copies of this one book. They made 300, 350 copies of this other book. They made hundreds and hundreds of copies from the originals. They didn't take that copy and then make another copy and then make another copy from that copy. They didn't do that. It was always from the original, geometric, original document from the Word of God. And that's incredibly important to understand. See, there's not copies of copies. Surely McLean is not a historian and she's just flat out wrong. She did not know the fact that God's word is preserved and it starts with the original. It's always starting with the original. The second thing that you need to understand, the second evidence, which is very strong, is that there is first century eyewitness accounts. First century eyewitness accounts. Most of the gospels in the New Testament were written in that very first century. You got Mark written around the 50 ADs. You got Matthew 70 to 80 ADs. You got Luke in the 60 ADs. And you got John 95 to 105 AD. These guys were present. The authors were present. And when the circulation began to happen, which we're going to look at here in a second, it was incredibly significant. See, if I told you that something happened... And there were some still eyewitness people around. You know what you would do? Don't take my word for it. You know what you're going to do? Hey, you were there, right? Did, did that happen? And they would say, well, yes or no. But in this case, there's eyewitness accounts that are still alive during the time that the Bible starts spreading throughout the world. The earliest document that the Word of God has 
was found in 117 AD. 117 AD. And it was this beautiful account of Scripture. And it began to circulate in Egypt during that time. So if they really wanted to know whether or not they were talking about was true, all they had to do was talk to the people that were still alive about it. See, do you understand? God's word was written in such a short amount of time. As a matter of fact, most scholars would tell you that it was so early. It happened so early after. The documentation happened so early after that it was like it happened yesterday. That's what the historians would say. That both secular and Christian, they would say that like historical documentation of that is so significant. But let's look at the quantity of manuscripts. You ready? The quantity of manuscripts Remember, the greatest was 647. We've got 100,000 to 150,000 manuscripts. 100 to 150,000 manuscripts. Do you think we can understand whether or not what we're reading today is true? Do you see how the evidence is so strong for the word of God that there is not a document in history that can match? See, this is why I put these up here to kind of give you an idea. Like, if I had these many manuscripts in comparison to these many manuscripts, I think I can be pretty sure that what I'm reading is the actual document that God originally gave us. You don't have to walk on shaky ground. You don't have to walk kind of going, well, my faith may be true. The Bible may be a good book. I don't know. Historically speaking, the word of God is the greatest evidence or, or evi there's more evidence for the word of God as a historical document than any other book in history. So much so, so much so, that if you, um, and I have, I'm gonna go back, but D.A. Carson made this statement, and he's a, it's a quote, I'm jumping down real quick, but it says this, what is at stake is a purity of text of such substantial nature that nothing we believe to be doctrinally true and nothing we are commanded to do in Scripture is in any way jeopardized by the variances. And we're going to talk about the errors. D.A. Carson. He goes on to say, he says, and I don't know if we have it up there, but it says, this is the issue. This issue is no longer even contested by non-Christian scholars for good reasons. To put it simply... If we reject, if we reject the New Testament and we reject the authenticity of the Bible on, in te on textual grounds, we have to reject every other ancient historical document in history and declare null and void every piece of inf historical information to the uh, leading all the way prior to the beginning of the second millennium. Meaning, we can't believe any of our history books. We can't believe any event in history. If we get rid of the New Testament and we get rid of the Bible, you might as well get rid of all other historical documents because none of them stand up to the scrutiny that the Bible does. See, God's word, God's word is so significant. The variations that I was getting at, and this is, what's, this is really cool. The variations, remember 647 copies, 1.2 million errors, variations. And it actually affects the story. 100 to 150,000 copies, manuscripts. 300,000 variations. But hear me, there is not a scholar, Christian or secular, that would tell you today, after looking at all those variations, that it at all, affects the purity of the word. Meaning, you've got some misspelled words. You've got a period in a wrong place. You've got some reverse sentences, different things like that. But nothing, nothing has ever affected the truth of the document that was written as being anything but what was originally penned by the apostles and the prophets. Do you see what I, this, here's why this is, this is what this means, okay? Let me give you why this means so much. This means Scripture's reliable. According to the world, use the world standards, I don't care. Scripture is reliable. 
It's so close to the original, it's like it happened yesterday. This also means that the 300 individual variations of the text in the New Testament are completely inconsequential. Doesn't even matter. The spelling errors and the phrases and all of that prove, it proves when you compare it to being 98% accurate. 98% accurate. This means that our New Testament is over 99% pure. In the entire text of 20,000 lines, 40 lines are in doubt. Only about 400 words is what that means. None affect the doctrine in the scripture. It means our Bible is true, not because we feel it, but because the evidence tells us. And finally, it means that God has protected and preserved his true word all the way down through history. It means there's 40 different authors on, written on three different continents and written over a period of 1,600 years if you take the Old and the New Testament. And yet all the books of the Bible harmonize and keep the same themes like a puzzle pieced together. It's almost like someone was a single author and put it all together for one beautiful message that you and I can know today. Is the Bible relevant? Does it mean something for you today? The word relevant means this. Truth that is closely connected for or appropriate to the current time, period, people, or circumstances. Is the Bible relevant? Is it connected to the current time, period, people, or circumstance? That's a, that's a, that's a good question, right? We need to know, can I use the Bible today in my everyday life? If, it, if, it is, if it's reliable, then is it relevant? Can I use it? Does it change me? Well, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this when talking about it. All scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. I need to be corrected. I need, and, and for training, I need to be trained in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, I need to be competent, equipped for every good work. God, God is moving in such a way that he exactly wants you and I to understand that this book is not just a historical document, it's divinely originated. See, if God spoke it, hear me, if God spoke it, then that means it's eternal. And if it's eternal, then that means it's timeless. And if it's timeless, that means it's relevant for you and I today, right now. See, our author was not a bunch of guys, not a bunch of pastors, praise God, that got together and said, hey, you should do this. That's not exactly, that's not what happened at all. It was God himself that said, let me give you exactly what's on my heart. Let me tell you exactly what's on my mind. The divine origin, 2 Peter chapter 1 says this, above all, above all you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. They didn't come up with this. Or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. They spoke from God. They didn't come up with what was something culturally relevant. They didn't become all woke and decide to match what the world was saying. They wrote what the Holy Spirit laid on their heart to write. And then they communicated it. Into, and, and then it, God put it together in this book. And he put all these books together in the way that he wanted it to. He preserved it. And then he handed it to you and I. And he says, I want you to understand that I authored this. No man did. The second relevant reason is because there's a practical wisdom that brings real change. It's relevant because it brings practical wisdom and real change. Baylor University did a study in South Africa, and there was 437 inmates that were immersed into a Bible study. Go figure, okay? I know what happened in many prisons around here. Come on. But the reality is in South Africa, they took 40. 437 inmates, and they put them in a Bible study. And then they took 400 others that weren't in a Bible study. 
and they monitored the change in effect that all of these inmates had. Do you realize at the end of this six and a half month journey of immersing them into God's word, the 437, 93%, according to all the studies and research done, were significantly changed. And you know how they were changed? They were changed in the way that they were, they had self-worth. They were changed in the way their self-identity was seen. Their moral character was changed. Their character development, their social development, including how they valued others. When the word of God got in them, all of a sudden, God seemed to get out of them and begin to reveal himself in the way that they acted and the way that they talked. It's almost like this is a book like no other. This is exactly what happens when the word of God finds residence in your heart and in mine. Matthew 4, 4 says this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Third and final, relevant because of life transformation. How many people need to walk up here and say, I was changed by Jesus. I was changed by his message. I was changed into the person I am today because this, these words gave me a hope unlike anything else. How many people need to walk up and share that story? How many times? Do you realize in the court of law today, if there's a single eyewitness account of something that happened, then they can be, be convicted of either guilty or not guilty, it just depends. Do you realize that every life change is an account of what Jesus is still doing today? Do you realize your life is an evidence that this book and the words that are spoken is still true? You become evidence for who God is and how transformed you've been because of this book. It's not about words. It's not about being informed. It's about being transformed because the words lead you to a person. And this person, his name is Jesus. And it's, this becomes your love letter. And he says, I want to I change you. And the more that I've opened up this book, and I've known, I, I've opened this book up for just about majority of my life. I gave my heart to Christ when I was 13 years old. And there's not a day that goes by that when I've opened this book, that somehow, some way, I'm changed. Because all of a sudden it reveals something about me and what I'm not. And it reveals everything about him and all that he is. But then it also invites me into becoming more, to seeing more, to living different. See, this is the beautiful thing about God's word. I can give you all the reasons of why this is the best historical document in all creation. It really is. But then I can just sit here and go, I was changed. See, the gospel's verbal. When you begin to share the good news, the good news, we find that message in here. All of a sudden, it gets in here almost organically. And then it lives out, out here. All of a sudden, the gospel lives out from my life every single day because I let this book invade all that I am. It's words. And it leads me to this relationship with Jesus that I can't explain with my words. I can tell you about it as best as I can, but it still misses the point. I'm in a love relationship with the God of the universe that just that saw me. And he sees you. And I just, I want our people I want you to know that. Like this, this is personal to me. This is so personal to me. Like every word belongs to me. Just like every word can belong to you. And no matter where you go and no matter what situation and decision needs to be made, these words will always lead you back to the truth of who this Savior is and how he can change you and make you something new. Colossians 1.6 says this, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Maybe you're one of those changed lives. I am. 
just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. So what's our responsibility? I'm just gonna give them to you right away. Here's our responsibility. There's three things. If this is, if this is reliable, then that means it's also relevant. And if it's reliable and it's relevant, then that means I have a responsibility to it. So what's my responsibility to this book? The very first thing is know it. Know it. Don't just say I'm a Christian. Don't just say I'm a follower. Would you pick up the game plan? Would you pick up the instruction manual and go, this is why I believe what I believe. This tells me everything I need to know for life, how I need to live, what Jesus is doing in me, and what Jesus is doing through me. And it brings me and ushers me into a place. Know it. Psalm 119 says this, I have tried hard to find you. Sound like us in our relationship with God. Don't let me wander from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart. Man, would you do that? Let God's word literally play hide and seek in every part of your body. I've hidden it in my heart. That, why? That I might not sin against you. I will study your commands, commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. Know it. Second thing, meditate on it. Meditate on it day and night. Joshua 1, 7 and 8 says this. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions. Not some, all that Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then, then if it's planted in the right way, you'll be successful. How many times are we trying to be a success in every other way but in God's way? Then you'll be successful in everything you do. You want to be a good husband? You want to be a good father? You want to be a good man? You want to be a good wife? You want to be a good mother? You want to be a good teacher? You want to be a good coworker? Know God's word. When it takes root, success is right around the corner. Maybe not the world's success, but God's success. It'll be pleasing in his eyes. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. Finally, act on it. Act on it. James 1 says this, but, you, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. Don't just hear God's word this morning. Don't just listen to these words. Take them to heart. Let them consume you. And the more that this word consumes you, the more you, you live the life that God always intended for you and leads you down that path of righteousness that you've always wanted to live. Don't just walk in here and go, I'm a Christian. Hey, pick up this word, open it up every day, and remind God that you are. Remind God. Let him know, hey, I'm yours. Can you show me something that I don't know about you today? And I promise you, he's never disappointed me and he won't disappoint you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed. God's word is true. And he shared this message, this gospel message about his son, Jesus Christ, who died, who was buried. And because we have the evidence that he rose again from the dead, it's even greater evidence to believe that everything that's in this book is true. God's resurrection was God's, God Almighty's stamp of approval saying, everything that my son did is true. Everything that I wrote is true. Everything that I'm doing is true. And you can put not just your life, but put your eternity into it. But some of you maybe this morning don't know my Savior. But oh, how he wants you to know him. So if you want to know Christ as your Lord and Savior as always, I'm going to lead you in this prayer. Again, there's nothing magical about this prayer. It's just believing what God has said that brings salvation. It says this, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. So right now, if you want to call on the name of the Lord and see your life radically changed forever, you can say this prayer out loud or silently in your heart by saying this, dear Jesus, I admit I'm a mess and I've lived my own life. I've trusted in my own ways and I'm ready to stop living it, living this life for me. Jesus, would you save me? I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you were buried in a tomb. But I also believe that you rose again, conquering both sin and death. Jesus changed me. I don't ever want to be the same. Would your word find residence in my heart that I might meet with you every day for the rest of my life? Thank you for saving me. Thank you that your word is true. And so are you. In Jesus' name, Father, I pray right now for every person in this room that made that decision. It's the greatest decision anyone could ever make. I pray for those that have put this incredible book on a shelf somewhere in their house, collecting dust. I pray today would be the day that they pull it off and that they would stick it in front of them and they would open it up and that they would devour its words and let those words devour them. That they would never want to be the same again. That the word of God that is true and is anchored in truth because Jesus is true. God, I pray that their eternity, that their lives, that everything about their lives would be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. My life is not a lie because Jesus' life is not a lie. Your truth is not a lie and I will be forever changed by it. Let it be said of this church and the church that follows. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.